time. Welcome to the underground, and tonight is the night. As Dexter would once say on the infamous Showtime series that is now making a revival, coming back to Showtime in a limited fashion, we are getting a season 9 of that show. All of that and more to talk about on tonight's episode of Pop Culture Underground, episode 11 of the show that is bringing you unforgiving takes, passionate opinion on all things pop culture, news, reviews, media, and more from a fan just like you. And as I said, Dexter is coming back. How exciting is this? What a great time to announce that too, as we are now rounding the corner in October, getting ready for Halloween, and our favorite serial killer is now making a return. Well, I don't understand. What is he going to do? Is he going to start, you know, chopping up humans with his new chainsaw now instead of trees and wood, since we all know he's a lumberjack now? I guess that's a huge spoiler for all of you out there that have not finished the show, but what, it's like 10 years old at this point? I, I don't even care. Whatever. Welcome to the show. I am Jordan, your host, your producer, your all-in-one. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I have an exciting announcement for those of you that care. It has nothing to do with the podcast, but just found out that the baby I'm having is going to be a girl, and a lot of you may be happy to find out that I'm going to be naming it, well, me and my wife, of course, are going to be naming it Kara, and yes, that is a name that comes from Supergirl. So if you watch the show Supergirl, you may know that it's a show that has a ton of highs and a ton of lows, just like Dexter. Dexter has a ton of really high highs and a ton of really low lows. Season 3 is terrible. The final season is terrible. But season 4, 7, 1, and 2, I know I said that in a backwards way, they're great seasons. And Supergirl is a lot like that, where it's got a lot, a lot of highs. It's got a lot, a lot of lows. But during the highs, one of the biggest highs of that show is Melissa Benoist in her portrayal of Supergirl. And when you watch it, she always comes through with her acting she always oozes with confidence and inspiration, and I thought, what what a better what a better person to name my daughter that's coming after. I mean, Supergirl is a fantastic character, one of the best female characters in all comics, if, if you ask me. I mean, I, I know, I know, you got Wonder Woman out there, you, you got a lot of great female characters out there, but Supergirl is just one of the best. And when you watch the Supergirl TV show, I'm not sure there's any other portrayal, acting portrayal, or character around that is better to model off of because she is just all about, you know, truth, justice, the American way, all that good stuff. But man, she just, she's always fighting for what's right. Always. And that's how I would like my daughter to be. So I've always wanted to name one of my kids after a comic book character. And I'm very excited to be able to get the chance to name her after Supergirl. She is in the rocket. She is headed for Earth. Estimated time of arrival is 17 weeks now, and I couldn't be more excited. But... Enough about that. Let's talk some pop culture. So I will be reviewing The Haunting of Bly Manor uh, towards the end of the episode in Pop C Weekly and my thoughts on that and the comparison to The Haunting of Hill House, if you even can compare the two, but I'll try to. And over in Marvel Weekly, we got to kick things off by talking about Doctor Strange being in Spider-Man 3 and what that could mean for that film and what it does mean for that film in my eyes. Also, Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are seemingly not confirmed to be in the film. However, what Sony said actually leads me to believe that they will be, that they are at the very least being pursued to be in the film. So we got to talk about that. Also, we got a shocking revelation that Tatiana Maslany is now denying being cast as She-Hulk. And I'm sorry, Tatiana, but we just don't believe you. We just don't believe you. Mark Ruffalo has already spoken on the matter. And when Mark Ruffalo speaks, he tells the truth. So... That's all I'm saying here. But we do have to talk about it and break it down a little bit. Over in DC Weekly, we got to talk about the new Green Lantern series that they just announced and my thoughts on that. Also, Michael B. Jordan is now set to produce a static shock film 
for DC and Milestone Comics, and he is also hinting that this will not be the only film in this quote-unquote new universe that he is now creating for, or at least centered around black superheroes. That is very, very exciting. Over in Pop C Weekly, we got to talk about the Invincible teaser trailer that came out that's going to be on Amazon later on, Dexter Season 9 happening as I announced at the top of the episode, and of course, Xbox boss Phil Spencer gave us some comments and could potentially be hinting at what the future will be for Bethesda Games and other studios that Microsoft just acquired for a whopping $7.5 billion, and his latest comments leave me to believe that those titles will not be on PlayStation in the future. But we will get into that. Let's go ahead and kick this baby off with Marvel Weekly. Parker, turn on the radio or something. Too damn quiet in here. Sure thing, Mr. Jameson. Alright, so first off, to kick off Marvel Weekly this week, I have to address the fact that there are way too many rumors flying around for the third Spider-Man film. I mean, it is getting to a critical point. It's boiling over with nothing else to do, no new movies hitting, no new Marvel movies at least, no big news coming out on a regular, consistent basis. Nobody else on Twitter has anything else to do but speculate and post bullshit stories about Spider-Man 3 and all these actors. I mean, I I just saw a a freaking Twitter account that has probably three or four times the followers that this show does tweet a story, not saying it's a rumor, tweeting a story that Henry Cavill is going to appear in Captain Marvel 2 as Wolverine. And while I guess that technically could be true, I seriously doubt it. There has been no confirmation of that. There has been no legit news source reporting that. And now you have Twitter accounts like this that are just posting that as is, that are taking it at face value, which they should not be, and just posting it. They post stuff like this all the time without saying this is just a rumor. It's all clickbait, guys. I used to fall for it. However, it's just ridiculous. And while I'm at it, I gotta call out We Got This Covered. We Got This Covered is the worst news reporting site ever. They are terrible. They do not know their superheroes. They, They don't know jack shit. I swear, if you guys see a story from We Got This Covered, just move along. Do not waste your time. You are going to waste valuable minutes in your life reading a bullshit story that We Got This Covered just throws out there because Johnny down the street mentioned it. He said, oh, you know what? I think think Danny DeVito really is going to be the next Wolverine. We Got This Covered will then post a a story saying, confirmed, Danny DeVito playing Wolverine, cast as Wolverine. It, It is insane. It is ridiculous. It pisses me off. Guys, you got to stop reading into this. You've got to stop believing these things. We Got This Covered is a terrible, terrible news site. And I would normally not come out here and call out Twitter accounts and news sites like this. But We Got This Covered, I have no shame in calling them out. And I think most of the people that listen to this podcast already know this. But if a few of you don't, news alert, We Got This Covered is complete bullshit. Now, let's talk about what what really is going to happen in Spider-Man 3. I mean... We got rumors that they want Tom Hardy to appear as Venom in this movie, and that, that I think that actually could happen, but nothing is confirmed on that front. Now, what is confirmed is Doctor Strange is going to appear in this film, and I think we all guessed that this would probably happen. See, Doctor Strange 2 comes out after the third Spider-Man film, and if they're going for a Spider-Verse approach, which it really looks like they are, they would have had to set it up in WandaVision or in the Spider-Man film through this manner, through Doctor Strange joining. And with him joining, that now allows Peter to explore the multiverse 
in some kind of way. If you guys go back and watch Spider-Man Far From Home, I just watched this with my whole family, the kids and everything, the other night. He actually talks about the multiverse in that film, which I totally forgotten about. You know, when Quentin Beck, Mysterio says that he's from another universe, that was very interesting for me to hear because now it looks like they really are going to do that in this third Spider-Man movie. Now, here's the question. Does the door to the multiverse be broken open in WandaVision? Or does Doctor Strange break it open for Peter in Spider-Man 3 as a way to remedy this new secret identity problem that has now been exposed since the whole world now apparently knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man? Does Spider-Man go to Doctor Strange and say, hey, I need to remedy, remedy this somehow, I can't talk, remedy this somehow, how do I do this? And Doctor Strange says, look, dude, there's a multiverse. There's a million other worlds out there, and this actually happened to you in another world, and this is what happened, and we don't want that to happen here. So yeah, we gotta figure some things out. Or, does a big, huge, multiversal baddie enter the fray, and then Doctor Strange comes to Peter, or Peter goes to Doctor Strange, and they're like, hey man, I need some more spider bros to tackle this. I can't do this alone. I need Toby. I need Toby Spider-Man. I need Andrew Spider-Man. We gotta get them all together. We need Spider-Ham. Let's get Spider-Ham in here. We, we need to tackle this with multiple Spider-Mans. We need a multiple unified Spider-Front to take on this new multiversal baddie. I think that would be really cool. But the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange is going to be in this film excites me because now I am like 99% sure the multiverse will be explored in some kind of way. Now, I do think I do think that WandaVision is going to set it up. I think Scarlet Witch will change reality. And I think it will be based off of that change alone that Doctor Strange and Peter meet. I think that's going to be one of the reasons why. And I think then Electro is going to come in. Now, I'm still questioning if it's going to be the Electro that we all saw in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I still have a really hard time believing that. I think they will change him up. I think he will be from another universe. But if Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man are really going to be in this movie, then that would actually make more sense for that Electro to show up. Now, I do think they would still change his aesthetics, change his look, change his appearance a little bit because it's god-awful in Amazing Spider-Man 2. But if they really are in this movie, maybe he brings Electro along with him. How? I, I don't know. I have no clue. The, the possibilities of what this movie could explore are endless, and they fascinate me to think about. We can theorize and we can speculate all day long, but Sony did say that we will get our first look at the film before the end of this year. So, it looks like we're not going to have to wait too much longer to find out. Now, let's talk about Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire. So, Sony had came out and essentially denied the fact that they were going to be in the movie. However, what they said actually leads me to believe that they will be in the film, or at the very least, they are being pursued to be in the movie, because what Sony said was that it had not been confirmed. They did not say, no, that's not happening. They did not say, you guys are crazy, we're not pursuing them at all. They did not say any of that. What they said is that the casting has not been confirmed. That leads me to believe that they are pursuing Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire to be in this film, but not everything's wrapped up yet, or Marvel is telling them, hey, we need to go the MCU Marvel way, and hush, hush, do not say anything about it. Which actually leads me to the Tatiana Maslany story, and why I believe she is denying being cast as She-Hulk, but that's over in that one. So if they bring Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man in here, He's got to be an older Peter, akin to the Peter Parker, that Peter B. Parker, whatever they called him, in the Into the Spider-Verse film, right? I mean, that's what I would guess. Uh, he would almost be like an old 
old man Peter, you know, instead of old man Logan or old man Bruce or whatever, old man Peter. So you would have him, you would have the young Tom Holland, and then you would have kind of like a middle-aged Peter in uh, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. So you would have the full spectrum of life right there uh, <laughs> in Spider-Man. How crazy would that be? I think that'd be really cool. I really hope that they do bring in some kind of huge multiversal baddie, somebody other than Electro. I hope Electro, even if uh, my, you know Marvel MCU'd him up and made him appear a lot better and made his character a lot better since we know Kevin Feige actually liked Electro in that movie through leaked emails that Sony had leaked a while back, that Sony had leaked. They didn't leak it themselves, of course. But I do know that Kevin Feige liked Electro. And so maybe he sees potential there and does not want that to go to waste. And Jamie Foxx is like, yeah, man, I had some really bad stuff to work with in that film. And I feel like if if I got the Kevin Feige treatment, I could actually take it to the house with this Electro. And so, yes, I do want my chance to be redeemed. I do want my chance to redeem that character. And voila, here we are. I think it's a great approach. I mean, when you think about it, after Endgame, they got to do something really big now to get people excited. And I think that's actually a problem going forward with the MCU is I don't know if they're going to be able to bring it back to basics and get everybody as excited as they had been with Endgame. Maybe they can over time. That's yet to be seen. But I think this is extremely exciting and this could be really great. And they're going to need a way to get people super excited and this is one way to do it. The multiverse, multiple Spider-Men, bringing Electro back. People are going to be curious about that. I mean, that this is brilliant on a PR marketing front that they're doing. I mean, it's a, it's a great thing. Can they pull it off? Can they make that really good in a two-hour movie? I don't know because you're not animated. You would have to take a similar approach to the Spider-Man and to the Spider-Verse movie. And are people already burnt out on that since we already saw that in that movie? I don't know. Is Miles Morales going to be showing up? Is Tom Hardy's Venom really going to enter here? I mean, are they going to just pull off a, a Avengers Spider-Man? I mean, is that what they're going to do here? I, I don't know. I don't know, but the possibilities are endless, and they are fascinating to think about, and I am very excited to be reporting on it and talking about it because it's really cool stuff, and I think they can really foray into some great things there. I just hope they pull it off because I think there is a slight chance that it's going to be too much, but maybe not. Maybe not. I'm excited for it. Are you guys? I, I don't know. Let me know on Twitter at Popsy Underground if you're excited for a Spider-Verse movie or not. We still don't know that that's for sure what we're getting, but like I said earlier, I'm about 99% sure we're going to get a Spider-Verse film here in some kind of manner. Are they going to follow the comics? Probably yes to a T. No, I don't think they would follow it exactly. I think they would, you know, MCU it up like they usually do with their films. Maybe they would do a Spider-Verse and another Spider-Man story that they're going to mash together, kind of like they did with Thor Ragnarok. That would be exciting. What it looks like they're shooting for here is big. It looks really big. And I guess you would have to go big for the third Spider-Man movie if it's going to be the final one. I seriously doubt it is, but it's going to be the final one in this trilogy. And I, for one, am very very excited for it. All right, time to talk about Tatiana Maslany lying her ass off. She is now denying the reports that she was cast as She-Hulk. I might add a month after the reports came out. Why is she doing this now, one month after? Why would she let them sit and simmer and cook for an entire month before she comes out and says, no, I was not cast as She-Hulk. Well, I'll tell you why. I think it's one of two possibilities. I think the first possibility is she does not know what she can or cannot say 
and Marvel told her to be quiet about it, and so she's just going to flat out deny it and say, no, I'm not. Yeah, but yes, you are. You are cast as She-Hulk. At least you were. I don't know if you still are, but I'm pretty damn sure you were, because like I said earlier, Mark Ruffalo mentioned it and tweeted it, and I guess he's not the most reliable secret keeper in the Marvel house, but that's a reason why you would believe that she is cast as She-Hulk. The guy tweets and welcomes everybody that joins. I mean, Amon Wilani joined as Miss Marvel. He had put a pretty brilliant tweet, really, about the Marvel family and beginning uh, with her joining. He had tweeted about Tatiana Maslany being cast. I mean, yeah, you, you were cast as She-Hulk. I'm almost positive about that. So I believe the first option is what I was saying. I don't think she knows what she can or can't say, so she's just going to flat out deny it and cover her ass 100%, which might be smart by her, but I don't think we're buying it. At least I'm not buying it. I could totally be wrong. I could totally be wrong. But I'm not buying it, Tatiana. I think you are She-Hulk. So Jessica Gao, also the writer that was uh, pinned to write this show, she had mentioned Tatiana joining as well. So how, why would they do that? If she was not cast, they were very legit news sources reporting on it. I don't ever report or talk about something on this podcast unless it came from a legit source, multiple legit sources, and I know for sure that it's not bullshit. I guess you can never know for sure, for sure, if everything's bullshit, but, you know, you can set a threshold and a rule, and I do that here, and I would not have reported on that if all of the things that I just talked about didn't happen. I think the second option could be the fact that she was cast as She-Hulk, or at least very close in final talks, as they usually like to say, and now she's playing hardball. Now, she's saying, well, no, I wasn't cast as She-Hulk. Um, we're still at the negotiating table, and I want some more money. I think that's another possibility, too. I would like to believe the former. I, I don't want to think that she would play hardball with them. I mean, she was brilliant in Orphan Black. She, she seems to be a great actress. I was really excited for her to join in this role, and I think we will still see her, so I don't think everybody needs to freak out yet. However, I am a little concerned that Marvel hasn't come out and corrected it, but that could also just be Marvel being Marvel. You know what I mean? So, I think we all need to calm down. I think Tatiana Maslany is our She-Hulk, and I could be wrong. I could always be wrong, but I don't think I am this time. I believe she is She-Hulk. Now, while still talking about She-Hulk, they are looking to cast a 10-year-old actor to play a young Bruce Banner, which could hint that we are going to be getting a lot of throwback scenes to Jennifer Walters and Bruce Banner as kids and their familial bond that they possibly created back then. Some other thoughts about this that I have are that they did they did create a very a very strong familial bond back when they were younger. And that could be a big reason why Bruce gives her a blood transfusion when she needs it so badly to become She-Hulk, if that's the route that they that they follow along here. I don't know if they're going to follow the comics or not. They could, they could not, they could do an MCU origin, but I, I think they will. And my guess is what I just said. My guess is that they were very close when they were kids. We're going to get a lot of flashback scenes to see that and for them to set that up. And then when Jennifer needed a blood transfusion, something major happens to her. She needs blood. Bruce might be the only person that can do it. And even though he has the Hulk inside of him, the fact that, oh, I could give it to her and she might become a Hulk as well. But that's worth the risk if it saves her life because otherwise she's going to die. I think that's a very big possibility. And I think that would actually be cool because that would follow the comics. That would add a lot of emotion to her becoming She-Hulk, that would, that would set up a very good origin for her, and I actually would like to see that. So, the fact that they're looking for a 10-year-old actor does not necessarily point to a 10-year-old Bruce Banner, though. They do get actors that are 10 years old to play a 7- or 8-year-old kid all the time. They get actors that are 10-year-old to play 
a 12 or 13 year old all the time. I mean, they do it all the time. They're almost never the age that they actually are in real life. So I think we could be seeing a Bruce Banner anywhere from seven years old to 13 years old. Either way supports the theory that they could be doing flashback scenes to set up a very strong familial bond that could, in fact, tie into her becoming She-Hulk later on down the road, which I think would be really, really cool. So that is all we got for Marvel Weekly this episode. Let's move on to DC Weekly. <laughs> it's that time again, boys and girls, for the DC <laughs> Weekly. After months of speculation, Warner Brothers and DC is definitely working on a static shock film. We have been speculating this really since DC Fandom, which I talk about it at length in my DC Fandom episode when the Milestone Comics guys had hinted that a Static Shock live-action film was in development. We had no confirmation on that. We did not know if that was true or not, but now I'm pretty sure we do, and they are bringing in some serious help in developing the project. Announced Friday afternoon, Black Panther star Michael B. Jordan is set to produce the feature alongside longtime scribe Reginald Hudlin. This is huge, huge news. These guys bring serious star power to this project, and it looks like they're actually thinking about doing a lot more than that. As Michael B. Jordan said, quote, I am proud to be a part of building a new universe centered around black superheroes. Our community deserves that. That is what Michael B. Jordan told The Hollywood Reporter. Now, this is huge. Michael B. Jordan is a great actor. He also brings a ton, a ton of recognition with him. The man is really, really powerful behind the scenes and in the scenes. I think he could add a ton to Static Shock and anything else that they plan on bringing. It sounds like they definitely plan on creating a new universe around this. The question is, is this going to be in the DCEU or is this going to be its own universe, kind of like Matt Reeves' Batman is shaping up to be? We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. I think we will know soon. I do believe it will be a standalone universe. I think it possibly should be a standalone universe as DC failed at a DCEU approach, and I think that is the best choice for them. They are really showing how they can succeed later on down the road by going away from the Marvel way, and I think that's great. I think that's very smart. I hope that's what they continue to do because I feel like they can make a lot better standalone movies or even standalone universes. They already introduced the multiverse concept in Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, you know what? I went back and watched that again, and I think in a previous episode I said I did not like it when it started, but I liked it how it finished. I, I'm going to take all that back. I do not like Crisis on Infinite Earths at all. I feel like they failed big time with that, and I can't believe I ever liked it in the first place. I feel like Elseworlds was so much better. Even the Invaders crossover that they kicked off the whole crossover thing with was better. Crisis on Earth X was the best one, hands down. Elseworlds comes in second place, very close to it. They were both really, really good. But Crisis on Infinite Earths, it, it's so unfortunate that that's the one that is the worst one because that's your big one that you built up to. It, it really sucks, but I really did not like it. But they did set up a whole multiverse theory. They set up how all of these DC projects could technically exist in the same multiverse without existing in the same universe. And I think that's really smart of them to do. I think they will tie it all together eventually later on down the road. They can do one huge tie-up. And, and I'm thinking like way later on down the road, like 10 to 20 years, if that's what they want to do. 
I think if they do succeed at these small universes that it seems like they're setting up, I think that's the way they should continue to do things and continue to diverge from the way Marvel does things, because Marvel has set up a brilliant universe. The MCU is a first of its kind. It is a once-in-a-lifetime type thing, and I feel like they really stumbled upon some luck to create that whole thing, but they also earned it by putting out the solo films first and building towards the Avengers. DC did not, they just didn't have that going for them in the beginning. They tried to start all at once and then go with their solo films after that. It just doesn't work that way. So to see them kind of break off from that approach is really great to me, and I feel like that is what they should continue to do, and I feel like that is definitely what they should do with Static Shock, and I think they could bring a lot of other characters in from Milestone Comics. There's tons of phenomenal characters that Milestone Comics created and wrote, and there's so many heartfelt, you know, real-life scenarios that they tackled with their comics, and what a better time to bring those to life and produce those right now when social injustice is prevalent and movies can help move us away from that. And I think Milestone Comics, Static Shock, Michael B. Jordan, Reginald Hudlin, I think those are all the perfect, perfect choices to bring all that to the forefront, bring it to live action, show us what it can be, because I think it can really, really be something great. Cannot wait for this. All right, it is finally happening. We are finally getting another shot at a Green Lantern live-action adaption as HBO Max is officially moving forward with Greg Berlanti's upcoming Green Lantern TV show as it has now been picked up for a 10-episode season. Now, Warner Brothers and DC made a big splash last year when they revealed their first slate of DC TV shows. With Berlanti's track record in producing multiple DC TV shows, the producer then revealed that he is working on Strange Adventures, as well as a series centered around the Green Lantern mythology. Now, details have been extremely limited ever since the announcement was made at the Warner Media event. Over this year, though, they have slowly begun to reveal various details about what fans can look forward to with this latest iteration of the Emerald Knight. And while never revealing the identity of the two human lanterns he would have in his show, Berlanti did reveal earlier that Sinestro would be a primary character in the series as it follows his origin story. Now, I don't know if they're still going to be doing that based upon what was revealed, but HBO Max over the year has been very vocal that their DC TV shows, including Green Lantern, would be getting movie quality production. They hinted that the budget will be very, very big when compared to the CW's Arrowverse shows. While the series has been in active development, HBO Max had never technically given it a series order, but chances were never low on that technically. Now Variety is revealing that HBO Max has officially picked up Green Lantern 2 series and it will consist of 10 episodes for its first season. Berlanti is going to be producing. The series will officially be executive produced by Seth Graham Smith, who will be the showrunner, unfortunately in my opinion. Arrow co-creator and Arrowverse producer Mark Guggenheim is also involved as he will be writing for the series. Now, no specific premiere date has been set as the show hasn't gone into production just yet, but for Seth Graham Smith, this marks a return for him in the superhero world as he did write the Lego Batman movie, which I guess that was good. I mean, depending on who, who you would ask, I suppose. 
He was initially going to direct the Flash film, if you guys remember that. Back in 2016, he was one of the million directors that came and gone, or uh, writers and directors, I guess, that came and gone with that project. But uh, Guggenheim, who has been working with Berlanti for over a decade, is now getting a second round with Green Lantern because Berlanti and Guggenheim both co-wrote the Green Lantern film from 2011 starring Ryan Reynolds. That was a critical and commercial disaster. But the duo has, since 2012 helped create the Arrowverse, which has become one of Warner Brothers' most successful DC franchises of all time, with more than seven shows produced for the CW. I just don't understand why you would go back to these guys for another Green Lantern outing. I don't understand why you wouldn't let somebody else get a shot at it. And the fact that Berlanti and Guggenheim are going to be involved, it just shows me that it can either be really, really good or really, really bad especially when you consider Seth Graham Smith being attached to this thing. I don't I don't think he really has anything to hang his hat on except for maybe the Lego Batman movie and that and if that's the jewel of your whole portfolio, I'm sorry man, but you just don't have a great portfolio. So, if you can imagine my excitement for this project, I mean, it's there because I love Green Lantern. Gre- Green Lantern was one of the first comics I ever read and I think it has some of the most complex, exciting fantastic mythology with it, but I just, I mean, don't get me wrong, the Arrowverse, I will never call it the CW-verse, by the way, the Arrowverse has a ton of great things. Those first two seasons of Arrow are phenomenal. The first season of Flash, phenomenal. There's a few seasons of Supergirl that are really, really good, but I think if you take all of it, for the most part, for the majority of it, a lot of it's bad. It's terrible. It's retread. It's tropey. It's, I mean, you got good acting, bright spots here and there, but honestly, I mean, I think if you take the Arrowverse as a whole, I think it had a very important part in establishing superhero TV, but I feel like its early days were definitely its best. So are you getting early days, Berlanti, or are you getting late days, Berlanti? I I don't know. It's so hard because it's like, Man, maybe, you know, maybe they, they're going to learn from their mistakes, and maybe that's why this is a good choice, but I, I'm just, I'm not excited for it, uh, at least as much as I would be or could be, and I really, really hope that I'm proven wrong. Now, the four lanterns that are going to be featured here are the legendary original person to don the Green Lantern name, Alan Scott, then you got more recent lantern, Jessica Cruz. Simon Boz and Guy Gardner, I love Guy Gardner, by the way, they are all four being given the spotlight. Now, I'm very interested to see if Alan Scott is going to be portrayed as a modern Green Lantern, or if they're somehow going to go back in time and get him, or if he's just going to be a Lantern that has never really aged and he's been here forever, and maybe he was one of the first ones. I'm very interested to see how they're going to tackle Alan Scott. Jessica Cruz, I really like as a Green Lantern. She was really good in the comic, the Dark Side War comic, which was actually at the tail end of the New 52, but it was really, really good. It was not like the rest of the New 52. It was great. And I like Jessica Cruz because she struggles with anxiety a lot, big time. And she overcomes that. And her story is really inspiring to me because I struggle with anxiety big, big, big time. And I really, really like her Green Lantern. And she has some other things you know, I don't want to give too much away about her, but she has some other things about her and her Green Lantern mythos that kind of haunts her, that she kind of uses to her advantage sometimes. I think they could do a lot of good things with Jessica Cruz. Simon Boz, I, I never got behind too much. He was a Lantern that really, 
he, he used his lantern to construct guns for the most part. And there's a really cool comic story about Batman getting him to put those guns down <laughs> and, and, uh, kind of, you know, come up with other things and not use a gun all the time because he would actually carry a real gun when he was a lantern still in his early lantern days, he would carry a real gun. But Alan Scott, I am very interested to see how they tackle him. Guy Gardner is kind of the hot headed bro lantern is how I look at him. Lantern bro, I guess. So I think they could, they could do a lot of good things with these four characters because I think they could all play off each other really well and make a really cool team to follow. But man, I'm just really concerned with the people that are involved with this thing. I mean, I guess I'll, I, I should reserve judgment to see who they cast as these lanterns to see if Sinestro is really who they're going to be, you know, focused on. I mean, I guess that would add some value to it. But I was really mad to hear who was involved with this thing. And it's not because I hate Greg Berlanti and I hate Mark Guggenheim. I don't really like Seth Graham Smith. But, you know, the other two guys, it's like they make something that's really, really good or really, really bad. And let's be honest, can the Green Lantern name afford and withstand another really, really bad adaption? I'm not sure it can. Now, here's my other question. Where's Jon Stewart and Hal Jordan? Are they being reserved for the DCEU? And if that's the case, is it going to be the same universe? Is the HBO Max show going to tie in with the DCEU, kind of like uh, HBO Max's upcoming GCPD is going to tie in with Matt Reeves' The Batman? That's yet to be seen. We don't know yet. Uh, but I think if it is... I think that could be good. I think that could be bad. You, you could get a situation where you have a terrible Green Lantern show, but then the Green Lantern Corpse movie comes out if it's ever going to come out, and it's really, really good. And then what do you do? Do you distance yourself from the show or vice versa? If the show's really good, the movie's really bad, do you distance yourself from the movie? I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm really confused about this. I'm not sure this is going to work out. I am crossing my fingers, hoping to the stars that it will work out. And I'm hoping that Greg Berlanti and Mark Guggenheim bring their A-game, bring their all-star game, bring their best, and just knock it out of the park with this and learn from all the mistakes that they had in the first Green Lantern movie, which I hope they can. And, you know, when you look back at that Green Lantern movie back in 2011, a lot of those problems had actually stemmed from the studio. And it seems that they have learned from their mistakes in some cases, you know, and some they have and some they haven't, but hopefully they have learned from them and can use that to further make this Green Lantern show and hopefully the movie that might come better. But I'll just say this. I hope it's a lot more brightest day than blackest night. Let's just use that. I hope it's a lot more brightest day than blackest night. So let's hope for brighter days ahead, I guess. I, I don't know. Let's move on to Pop C Weekly. <laughs> Alright, Amazon's Invincible teaser trailer finally dropped, and I'll just say this. The animation looks crisper than an extra toasted Pop-Tart, baby. It looks great. The animation looks great. It looks so much like the comic. I mean, I, I, would, I would challenge you to find something that looks more like the comic pages have come to life in animation form than this right here. I mean, this embodies the comic, everything about it. The voice work, the animation, the way it looks, the freaking dialogue. I mean, it is Invincible come to life in full form. And I cannot wait. I really, really cannot wait for this show. I hope it's another hit like The Boys was for them. And if they can keep adapting these independent, lesser-known comic books, and, I, and Invincible is not really a lesser-known comic. I mean, it was a very, very well-established Robert Kirkman comic that went for a long time, 
but man, man oh man, does this look good, and I cannot wait for it. I love the Invincible comic book, and I think I'm going to love the animated show even more. Yes, I said it, I think I'm going to love it even more than the comic. And Joe Stark, I know you're out there, I know you're listening. How phenomenal was this trailer? I know you and me started reading Invincible at the same time, and we both loved it and kept ordering trade back, or trade back, trade paperback after trade paperback of this comic, and I just continue to show my love for this comic, and I think I will show and have more love for the show, the actual animated show coming out, even more than the comic. Let's rate this trailer. Just in case you do not know the Popsy rating system, my initial ratings are on a five-star scale, but I usually use something relating to the property. So in this case, we will do five human bombs out of five. And for those of you that read the Invincible comic, you know what the human bombs is a reference to. It is a great part of that comic. And there's so many things in this comic that they can do on this TV show, especially with it being animated. They can pretty much portray the entire series in comic accurate fashion. And that is fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating to me. Now, if you do not know my rating system, I also do Undie Awards, which is essentially a Michael Scott from The Office Dundee Award that he gives out, but instead an Undie for Underground. And I also do Stanleys for things that are middle of the road, and I do Tobies for things that are absolute trash. And this, of course, is going to receive an Undie Award. All right. Everybody's favorite serial killer is back. Dexter is getting a revival on Showtime with original star Michael C. Hall set to return as well as the original showrunner Clyde Phillips. It is coming back with a 10-episode run per The Hollywood Reporter. And this is so funny that this news hits right now in October, right before Halloween, and in the midst of a rewatch that me and my wife are doing of Dexter, it is my third time watching the series as a whole and it is her first time watching Dexter, and she, of course, has also fallen in love with everybody's favorite serial killer. Now, the fact that this is coming back, it, it's so great, because I feel like they have an opportunity here to fix the god-awful Season 8 and Season 8 series finale. I mean, it was terrible. It was god-awful. And hopefully, hopefully they can resurrect it and bring it back and make it the fitting end that Dexter so well deserved after so many people ended up on his table, after all the terrible people that he got rid of for the world, after all of the justice he did for you and me. <laughs> Hopefully, he gets the ending that he deserves. It will be a continuation of the original show, and production is expected to begin in early 2021 ahead of a fall 2021 premiere. So, we are one year away from our favorite serial killer coming back and putting people back on his table. Hopefully, hopefully they put this awesome tweet out at uh, the Dexter, the official Dexter Twitter account, which is Dexter on Showtime, which said, surprise, motherfucker, he's back. Hashtag Dexter, you know, invoking their inner dokes there. I thought that was great. Uh, I cannot wait for this. Additionally, Showtime Entertainment President Gary Levine said in this statement, I probably said that last name wrong, but whatever. He said this in a statement, Dexter is such a special series, both for its millions of fans and for Showtime. 
as this breakthrough show helped put our network on the map many years ago. We would only revisit this unique character if we could find a creative take that was truly worthy of the brilliant original series. Well, I am happy to report that Clyde Phillips and Michael C. Hall have found it, and we can't wait to shoot it and show it to the world. Now, if what he's saying is true, I would really be happy that they are only going to revisit this character if they found a creative take that was truly worthy of the brilliant original series, like he said. If that's true, that's great. I hate it when they bring these things back as a cash grab, and initially, I kind of thought maybe that's what, what was happening here, but when you think about the terrible finale that show got, this is one show that I would be happy that they would actually bring back for one more limited run series to correct that mistake, and only if they can do so in a creative way that fits the show, which it sounds like they have found. I hope, I hope that's what they have found, because the show just, after season four, the show just got bad, and I mean, it had a good season, what was it, season seven, I think that was really, really good, but after season four, it just gets terrible, and I think season four is the best with Trinity, you know, that, that Trinity killer is, he, man, they did such a great job with that season, and the dynamic between Dexter and Trinity was absolutely fantastic, the portrayal of Trinity was great, and I'm really excited to see them bring this show back and wrap it up in good fashion. I hope, I hope that's what they can do, but this news is a home run for me, because like I said, we are in the midst of watching Dexter again, and so it was so funny to literally wrap up an episode of Dexter, put on Twitter, and find out that, oh, what do you know, it's coming back, and I, I was shocked. I did not think that they would do this. I never in a million years did it ever cross my mind that they would bring Dexter back. I mean, I had not heard any rumblings about it, any rumors about it. There may have been, I just didn't see or hear about them, so this was a very welcome surprise for me, and I am very happy to be getting Dexter back in my life, especially with Clyde Phillips returning to run the show, because it was really when he left that the show's quality began to decline, and Clyde Phillips has spoken openly about how he would end Dexter in a different way, and his involvement with the revival means that he can end the story the way that he always intended to end it. It can be easy to scoff at series revivals, which I said before, especially these days, but like I said, in this case, there seems to be a very, very good reason for it. I am thrilled that Michael C. Hall is coming back. I am thrilled that Clyde Phillips is going to be running the show again because, man, it really, really went off a cliff when he left the show, as I mentioned. I mean, they had maybe one good season in there. So the fact that he's coming back, it, it just all the more reason to bring the show back and end it with one more season. Now, here's a question, though. With him coming back, if they do this last season right, does that still justify the terrible seasons that came right before it? I'm not sure it would. I don't know if I would tell somebody to sit down and watch all eight seasons just so you can see this final one, because there's so much bad with all the good. There's so much good in Dexter, but man, there is so much bad. There is some terrible acting in this show. There are some terrible plot lines, terrible stories, but Michael C. Hall was brilliant throughout the whole thing. I will add, I think there was times where he kind of started to become dull to the whole thing, and maybe even he saw the writing on the wall with how bad it was getting, but this will hopefully give him a shot in the ass 
get him back in Dexter form. We got the showrunner coming back. We got Dexter coming back. It's just, we're all just coming back here. All coming back for a revival. And I cannot wait to get Dexter back in my life. Like I said, man, I can't wait for this. I, I love Dexter. I love the good Dexter. I will say the bad Dexter is really, really bad. But the good Dexter, some of the best TV you will ever watch. Ever. Man. Woo. Let's move on. All right. To wrap up the news portion of this episode, Xbox boss latest comments are really bad news for PS5 players, potentially. So Phil Spencer, the head of Xbox, had seemingly bad news for PlayStation players that were hoping to play some of the next generation's biggest games on PS5. And while I called this when last month Microsoft announced the acquisition of Bethesda's parent company, ZeniMax Media, that meant that Microsoft now owns the following series, The Elder Scrolls, Fallout, Starfield, Doom, Wolfenstein, Dishonored, Prey, Rage, The Evil Within, Ghostwire Tokyo, Deathloop, and more. That is a ton of valuable IP Microsoft now controls. And it now looks like most of it will not be coming to the PS5. Now, Microsoft has already confirmed that Bethesda games already announced for the PS5 are still coming to the console, but it does not look like that's going to continue with future releases, or at least Phil Spencer is not committing to bringing future Bethesda games to PS5. Because during a new interview, Spencer was asked if it was possible for Microsoft to recoup its $7.5 billion investment in Bethesda and ZeniMax if it does not bring games like The Elder Scrolls VI to PS5. And replying to this, Spencer quickly said yes. He said, quote, I don't want to be flip about that. The deal was not done to take games away from another player base like that. Nowhere in the documentation that we put together was, how do we keep other players from playing these games? But he then said, we want more people to be able to play games, not fewer people to be able to go play games. But I will also say in the model, I'm just answering directly the question that you had. When I think about where people are going to be playing and the number of devices that we had, and we have xCloud and PC and Game Pass and our console base, I don't have to go ship those games on any other platform other than the platforms that we support in order to kind of make the deal work for us, whatever that means. So as you can see here, Spencer does not outright say that future Bethesda games won't come to PS5, but you can already see Spencer has a vision on how to bring these games to a vast audience that does not include the next-gen PlayStation system. He, I mean, he did say, we don't want to take players away from this. We don't want to take these games away from players. But he then continued to go and say, but look, we have xCloud, PC, Game Pass, and our console base. I think he's saying right there, we can basically take this away from PS5 without taking it away from other players because we have so many other options other than just the console. I mean, you can play Xbox games on your phone now through xCloud. You can play them on PC. Game Pass covers pretty much all those platforms. So that's really all he would have to do to fit the scenario he's laying out here. So it doesn't really does not look like to me that these games are going to be on PS5, and I don't think he ever intended them to be on PlayStation. When you invest $7.5 billion in something, I don't think you do that just to acquire them to have more games for your console. I think you do that 
to acquire those games to bring more people to your console. And the only way you do that is by making them Microsoft slash Xbox exclusives. I think that's the reason why they bought the studio. I think when Halo got delayed, they they said, look, we need we need something. We have got to build some excitement for our new system. We've got to build some excitement for the future of this company and our gaming sector. And I'm still surprised that Microsoft allowed Xbox $7.5 billion to buy studios like this, but you don't do it to then give the games to PlayStation as well and not up your odds at bringing players to your system and your whole games library as a whole. I mean, this is a game changer for them, and I don't think they do it just to continue to keep things how they are. I think they do it to change things and make and say, look, if you want to play Elder Scrolls, if you want to play the new Fallout games that are going to be coming on the next generation of systems, you can only do it one place, and that's Microsoft. That's Xbox. This is the only place you're going to do that. That is the only reason you spend billions of dollars on gaming studios, in my opinion. So I called this. I'm still predicting this. I think that's exactly what he's saying here. I think that's exactly what he's saying without him saying it. And I think he brilliantly towed that line here and said that without saying that. So I think it's genius that they did this. I think they needed to do this after they had really no hype for their new console with no no big launch games to go with it. But now you say, look, yeah, PlayStation 5, you may own us in 2020, but come 2021 and 2022, we now have the edge. And I think that's true. I think Microsoft and Xbox will have the edge if these games are exclusive. I think they have a chance to turn the table. They really did not want to have a repeat of the Xbox One. I mean, they were begging to not get crushed again. And I think the only way that they could have done that after losing Halo was this right here. This was the best thing they could have done. Now, this obviously isn't going to take effect until later on in the generation, but I think that is the most important part right there. You're you're laying out a reason for people to buy your console now and in the future because you get immediate impact with this. You're able to add Doom Eternal to Xbox Game Pass by doing this. You're able to add a lot of those games to Game Pass and then the future games, the big time games that are going to be coming out for the new systems, you say, oh, you can only do that here. And that is why they did this, and that is why he's saying this, and I fully believe that Bethesda will be Microsoft Xbox exclusive in the future, and that alone will get me to buy one next year. I'm telling you, it will, and I think it will get a lot of other people to buy one as well, or at least buy a Game Pass prescription or xCloud. I think that is going to change a lot of people's mind and get them to buy Xbox in some kind of fashion. So with that said... Let's wrap up the weekly stuff and talk about the haunting of Bly Manor, and then we're going to do our monster match for this episode, which we're doing for the entire month of October, and talk about a horror movie. This time, it will be The Cabin in the Woods, one of my all-time favorite movies. Not just horror movies, movies. I was thrilled and just full of what-the-fuck moments when I was watching this movie. But first, first, we got to review and talk about The Haunting of Bly Manor. Alright, so first off, I want to start this review by recapping Hill House and what I thought of it. So, I rewatched The Haunting of Hill House right before this. And The Haunting of Hill House, in my opinion, is absolutely legendary. I think it is easily one of Netflix's best shows to date. The way that Hill House deals with mental issues, 
and confronting your past as well as a plethora of other social issues is absolutely incredible because at the same time, it strikes a phenomenal horror balance along with it. It's amazing. It was so brilliant the way that they did that show. And I feel like they continued that brilliance with The Haunting of Bly Manor. However, The Haunting of Bly Manor is so different than The Haunting of Hill House. It, it's such a different show. I mean, w when you think of the two in the sense of a horror show, in that sense, I don't really think that you can compare the two. But I will say, overall, I do think Hill House is better than Bly Manor. But Bly Manor on its own is still fantastic genius and completely stands on its own the, the lesson the really the lesson learned here is mike flanagan the creator of the show he, he's an absolute powerhouse i i will watch everything this man does especially in this whole haunting universe if you want to call it that and i think bly manor is brilliant but where bly manor fails when it is compared up against hill house is the consistency bly manor has a few episodes that drag on and I kind of lost interest a little bit throughout the series, where with Hill House, I did not. I, fe I felt like my anticipation and my excitement for what we were learning, what we were finding out, the things they were doing, the the like two or three take episodes that they did where like they followed around the, the, the actors, like the whole episode, there was like two or three takes in it. You know, it was so good and just kept building upon itself with each episode and came to an outstanding climax. I do think the ending of Bly Manor is actually better than the ending of Hill House, but overall, Hill House is a superior product when you compare it to Bly Manor, but Bly Manor does the same thing Hill House does in a way that it, it, it weaves and it twists and it turns and it flawlessly brings everything together in one beautiful bow. I mean, it's genius the way that Mike Flanagan is able to construct these shows not in a linear sense, but in a jangled, jumbled, messed up sense, but he brings it all together by striking a thread through all of it and wrapping it all up beautifully. He does it in both Hill House and Bly Manor, and they are so, so different. There's a lot more ghost in Hill House, but does that mean Bly Manor is any less creepy than Hill House? Not really. I mean, I think Hill House is a little more scarier than Bly Manor. I think Hill House, like the actual Hill House, is actually one of the most terrifying horror settings in any horror movie or TV show. I think that place is brilliantly constructed, brilliantly portrayed. It's a terrifying place. When the when the family members went there, every time you're like, oh man, we're in for a show here. And, and Bly Manor kind of fails on that front. Not completely just when you compare it to Hill House. But see, it has things that it does where Hill House did not do, where it exceeds that. And, and there's no spoilers here. I'm not going to be spoiling anything. I thought very hard about this. Very, very hard. My final rating for Bly Manor is actually going to be three and a half dollhouses out of five. So that's a 3.5 out of five. And I am going to give it a solid good Stanley, a really good Stanley. It almost hits an undie award. If all the episodes were consistently as good as the best episodes were in this season, it would definitely get an undie. But there are parts where I kind of lost interest, and that was unfortunate. But let's be honest here. Bly Manor was never going to live up to Hill House. I feel like Hill House was so good that Mike Flanagan is never going to be able to live up to that. And that's the unfortunate fact 
about coming out with a show where your first season is just flawless and it is perfect and it is so good and it is genre defining because that, in my opinion, is what Hill House is. And I don't think Bly Manor was that good. However, I would recommend Bly Manor all day long, especially in the month of October, but any month. I think these shows can be watched and fully enjoyed at any time. I think they're a lot better at nighttime, of course. You know, every horror movie or anything dealing with ghosts is better at night, right? But Bly Manor is good in its own right, and I would recommend it all day long. And I still think Bly Manor is one of Netflix's best shows. But Hill House? You were never going to live up to Hill House. Hill House was so damn good. So overall, was it as good as Hill House? No, it was not. Was it good? Yes. Was it great? Yes, I do think it was great. But I do think about six of its episodes are completely superior to the other ones. And that is unfortunate, but it's not like you should really expect another flawless, perfect home run again, right? I mean, they had a few years to do this. I I feel like they failed on a few fronts, but overall, it is a fantastic season of television. Really, really good. The, The actors in this are great. A few of them carried over from Hill House, still great. The kids, though, I feel like the kids really shined in this one, especially Flora. She was phenomenal in this. She was so good in this. And in the beginning of the season, they did a great job of building mystery and tension And I feel like they paid off on that, and that's more than you can say for a lot of shows out there. So, Bly Manor, a solid three and a half out of five dollhouses, and a solid good Stanley, and just a solid great show all around. If you have not watched it, I do recommend you watch it. Go check it out, especially right now with Halloween coming up. It is a great, great show. So, with that reviewed, with that said, it is now time to hit up Movie Mash. Cabin in the Woods, one of my all-time favorites. This is one of those movies, maybe one of the top movies in this sense, that the less you know about it going in, the absolute better. I'm telling you, for about 75% of this movie, you are going to be saying, what the fuck? What does this mean? What is going on? And that is fully 100% intended. This movie mocks the horror genre, while also towing the line of the horror genre at the same time, and it blends the two effortlessly almost. This was Drew Goddard's first time directing a movie, and Joss Whedon produced it. Now, no matter what we think about Joss Whedon at this point, he did a fantastic job producing this movie, and Drew Goddard did an even better job directing this movie. You have some of the tropiest of tropey characters in this movie, and it is fully intended. I mean, it's It's genre-defining in its own genre. Like, it defines its own genre. It's very weird in that sense. It's almost like Scream, almost. It's very akin to Scream, in my opinion, where it mocks the horror genre while also being horror at the same time. Really good horror. This movie is so different. It is so unique. And it is so rock-solid. And this movie has one of the best endings. I love, absolutely love the ending of this movie. If you've never seen it, you've never heard about it, go go watch it. Afterwards, we got to talk about it because it's a movie that cannot be explained without giving things away. And even then, I could not tell you the extent that this movie goes to 
to just mess with your head and mess with your mind and make you go, what the hell just happened? I saw this movie on my 19th birthday and I came out of the theater just shocked. I mean, it was almost like my hair was thrown back. It's like I had just been through a freaking acid trip. I'm just going to say, how about that merman, baby? My favorite merman ever on screen. And I hope that doesn't give too much away. But this movie is one of a kind. It is absolutely great. And I had to include it in Movie Mash. And I am just sitting here with glee spread all across my face talking about this movie. Because I just watched it again the other night and loved it again. It was my wife's first time seeing it. And she had the same reaction I did when I first saw it in the theaters on my 19th birthday. I love this movie, and this movie may not be for everybody, and that's okay. You may not like it, and that's okay, but it does a really, really, really good job of towing the line of mystery, horror, and comedy. It blends those three genres into one unique, satisfying genre, in my opinion. I I don't see any other movie like this. I think Scream is the closest it gets, and no one has replicated it since. There will never be a sequel to this movie for good reason. You will understand that after you see it. At least I hope there never will be. I mean, it came out nine years ago, so you would imagine if they were going to do one, they would have already. But the way that they do this film and make you laugh and make you scream and make you go, what the hell, and make you just just enthralled in mystery is fascinating. It's great. It is a phenomenal movie. It is a great choice. You've got to watch it. Sit down with your significant other or by yourself. It really does not matter. You're going to have a great time watching this movie. I promise you. Unless you're like the 1% that aren't going to like this film. But I was so happy to include this movie in Movie Mash. The the creatures that you see in this movie are great. The betting that goes on, and that's not spoiling anything, but you'll understand after you see it. The betting that happens with it, you're like, what, is, what are they betting on? What the hell's going on? If you have a chance... You have to pause the movie at certain points, especially when you got the whiteboard up and they're betting on things. You got to just look at a few of the things in there. The things that they throw into this film are batshit crazy, and it makes it that much better. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, Thor as we know it, is in this film. This was like one of the first movies he did. Um, He's great in it. He's not, uh, well, okay, I take that back. He's not great in it. He definitely was able to show in this film that he had some acting chops, but he was not there yet. I think he got a lot better by the time he got to Avengers Endgame and Thor and all that. Even in Thor, he wasn't the best actor, but he has evolved a lot. And while he's not known for being a great actor, he fit the role in this film as a smart jock to a T. He was fantastic for it. And I just think this movie is a must-watch if you've never seen it. If you have seen it and you know a friend or a significant other or whatever that hasn't, you've got to sit down and watch it because it is so fun watching this movie with someone that doesn't know a damn thing about it and just watching their face the whole entire movie. And I promise you, while you do it, they're going to ask you 10 times, what is going on here? And you are not going to say a damn thing because you are going to love the expression on their face when they finally figure it all out at the end. It is so great. This movie, it's not a movie that's going to freak you out. It's not a movie that is going to make you scream in terror but it's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you wonder. It's going to make you go, what the fuck if I have not said that already a million times? It's a fantastic movie. Go watch The Cabin in the Woods. It is great. I think you're going to love it. I certainly loved it. I will watch it any night of the week. It does not matter what time of the year it is. I will give it 
five Cabin in the Woods out of five. We'll just use that because I don't want to spoil anything. I will give it an Undie Award all night long. Go watch The Cabin in the Woods. One of my favorites. Hopefully, it'll become one of yours, too. Great movie. And guys, that will essentially wrap up this episode. So if this is your first time listening to the show, you can follow me on social media as I post things every day, all day long on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All of them are all at Pop C Underground. That is Pop C Underground. You can also email the show at popcunderground at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show and you have not done so yet, please go leave a review on iTunes. That helps the show out so, so much. And if you feel so inclined, you can tip the show. There is a tip jar link at the bottom of the show notes, but please, please go on there and at least leave a review. Leave a tip if you want, but whatever. Trying to do this full time. I love doing the show. I love podcasting. It is my absolute passion. I know everybody out there loves to get their voice out there, and everybody's doing so right now, especially in the middle of this election time, and I'm following politics very closely, and I don't bring politics onto the show. I don't tell you which way I lean or or any of that stuff, but I have been following that very closely, and that's been taking up a lot of my time, so hopefully after the election, I'll be freed up a lot, lot more, but man, I mean, this election is pivotal. I know you've heard this a million times. I mean, you've probably been told by everybody and your mom to get out there and vote, but but it really is that important. I mean, this could be the most influential, important elections of our lifetime. It really could be. So get out there and vote. But after that, hopefully I'll be freed up a lot more because, man, I'm following politics so much more closely now than I ever had. And uh, but, but I don't bring it here. I don't bring it here. That's probably the most I've ever brought politics onto this show. But like I said, go leave a review. Go leave a tip if you want. Follow me on social media. Help the show out. I'm trying to grow this thing. I appreciate it. I hope you guys appreciate it. I hope you like it. If there's things you don't like about the show, let me know. If you want an email read on the show, let me know. I will read it. If you want me to read your iTunes review on the show or Apple Podcast or wherever the hell they're calling it now, if you want me to read that on the show, I will do that as well. I read uh, Blake Perkins' review not too long ago. It was a great review. Made my day. Those types of things make my day and are the reason I do this thing. I always used to say on the Supercast and this show... If there's even one person listening, I will continue to do it for that person. But really, I do it for all of you, but I also do it for me. It's a way I can vent. It helps my anxiety greatly, which I have a huge problem with anxiety. And it caused me to walk away from some things not too long ago. And unfortunately, some people don't understand that. That's fine. Whatever. You know, to each their own, I guess. But, you know, it's a real thing. And this helps me out greatly. It helps me to get my voice out there, even if there's no one at all listening. But, you know, the show is doing better than I thought, and I appreciate all the support from you guys. Keep it coming. I love it. I will keep doing this. And one very important note I will end this on is everybody has an opinion. Respect it. Even if you don't agree with it, especially if you don't agree with it, respect it. We all have free will. We have all earned a right to our own opinion. And just because it's not like yours does not mean it's technically not right. Everybody's not like me. Everybody's not like you. We all own our own opinion. So respect that, please. Guys, I love you. I appreciate it. I will see all of you on the next episode. Take it easy until then. Later. Later.